1 Peter 1, 3 through 9. Blessed be, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Jesus Christ. According to his great mercies, he has caused us to be born again to living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed at the last time. In this you rejoice, though now, for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning again. We are so thrilled that you've joined us this morning uh, to worship and celebrate the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Maybe you are a regular attender of Bethany, or maybe you just saw one of our signs around town, as I said, this week, and you're just tuning in to check us out. Whatever the case, welcome. We are so glad that you are watching this morning. This morning, I want to ask you to not let your eyes fool you. It may look like you're worshiping alone this morning or just maybe with your family in the room, but you are not. Don't be deceived by what you see. We may be apart spatially right now this morning, but the union we have in Jesus and with each other and him means even when apart, we are never alone. Distance does not have to equal disconnect for the Christian. There is a great body of believers worshiping with one voice and heart and spirit even though we're apart this morning. Well, this morning, as you see our theme on the screen behind me uh, for Easter, we want to find a living hope this morning. It's our theme this Easter. You know, this week I was talking with one of the, the women who attends our church and she was talking uh, how at, at her work she just could sense morale was down this week. Uh, people were just seemed a little more down and uh, over these past few weeks even. And she said to them, I, I, I really want to, I just want to say, come on guys, cheer up. But then she told me, she remembered, many of them don't have Jesus and the hope that he brings in the midst of trials, in the midst of storms. So this morning, if you're a follower of him, we have Jesus. He is resurrected and he's reigning and he's living in hearts. And that means we have reason beyond all people to hope this morning. In the midst of, of great suffering, great crisis. And what a beautiful passage we have to unpack this morning to find this living hope. So let's do that together. I chose this passage for us this morning, this year. Uh, it's not from a traditional gospel resurrection passage. But I chose it this year because not only is it actually a powerful resurrection passage, a passage about what it means also to be a Christian. But it's also set in the context of enormous pain. In this letter from 1 Peter that the Apostle Peter wrote, he thinks of suffering and tragedy as fire, as going through a furnace. And he's writing this letter, he did write it to people who were actually suffering 
in their life, whether it's persecution for their faith or just every day suffering that comes with just being alive. Peter's thinking about in our passage this morning in this entire letter about life as a furnace. And right now, all across the world, there are people feeling the heat turning up on life. Whether it's the stress of financial loss or health or just the, the tedious boredom and, 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 and craziness that goes with being quarantined inside your house for a month now. Everyone knows a furnace can do one of two things. It can either burn something up or it can refine something like gold. Here's a question for you to ponder. How is it that two people can go through the same furnace, the same tragedy, and one comes out bitter, angry, cynical, maybe hating God, and the other person comes out gentler, humbler, more willing to serve others with a a clarity on life, the same furnace and two entirely different outcomes. Or, or think of two cooks, to put it in another way for us. All those cooking shows you've been watching lately, you, you give the same ingredients, the same exact oven that has the same exact temperature, and one produces a cake ah, that's delicious and wonderful, appealing to the eye, but also the palate. And the other produces one that falls apart, doesn't taste right, dry. Peter is saying today, we all go through the furnace of life. But those who know Jesus can go through the furnace of life with hope and come out the other side beautiful, refined, transformed. And so this morning I want us to look at this passage. We're going to pull out three reasons to hope this morning. So grab your outline. Hopefully you printed it off from the email we sent this week or you just got it up on your screen and hopefully you got your Bible open as well. We're going to look at these three reasons to have a living hope this morning. Here's our first one. We can hope because Jesus has risen and new birth is available in him. Peter says in verse 3, we can have a living hope. But what is that? What is a living hope? A living hope is not just some general optimism. It's not just that Christians tend to be more happy people more often. It's not just uh, even being a person who happens to see the glass half full rather than half empty. You know, the Bible's view of people and situations and life, on the one hand, is not very optimistic. Remember, we're people who believe in original sin and that being passed on from our first ancestor, Adam. You know, Peter says, he's so, he's so realistic in this letter, he says later on in this letter, don't be surprised when fiery trials come. Don't be surprised, in other words, when you lose a job or finances disappear or when friends and family disappoint you or a virus even overtakes the world. When everything falls down around your head, in other words, Peter's saying, don't be surprised. Too many Christians, though, whether we speak it out loud or not, and more times than not, we don't. Too many Christians think the Bible teaches that you come to Jesus, give him your life, 
and you won't go through the furnace. We think, well, you know, my air conditioning might break, but uh, not a furnace. A furnace? The Bible and Christians are realists. You will go through them. It's just part of living in this world. But here's the thing. A living hope means we can be hopeful and joyful beyond imagination, beyond the present circumstance, because Christ has raised from the dead. If that hasn't happened, we're to be pitied. We're fools, uh, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. We have no reason to hope then. It's based on this entire historical fact, our entire faith. A living hope is the assured conviction then of a triumph, of this victory. Have you ever watched an intense movie? And yet you've watched, you loved it so much, you didn't watch it just once, but you watched a second, a third, and a fourth time. And you realize how the experience is different upon the, those subsequent viewings. In this intense movie, you know, the first time you watched it, your heart was racing. Your palms were sweating. And you were biting your nails. The second time, and the third, you, f- you, s- you realized as you watched this intense action and this in- heroes in danger and peril, you, you realized the second, third, and fourth time, hey, you were more relaxed. You even had your feet up. You weren't on that emotional roller coaster you experienced the first time you watched it. Well, what was happening there? You had a living hope because you knew that the characters, the heroes, they live in the end. They don't die. They're they're victorious at the end, and you knew it. That second, third, and fourth viewing that you didn't realize the first time. We have a living hope. Because in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, we know the end of the movie. We know that we too will resurrect and be given new bodies. And, And it's through that resurrection that secures for us that new future a future that gives us hope uh, for the here and now. A living hope, Peter calls it. Because when Christ lived, he lived for us. Because when Christ died, he died for us. Because even when Christ resurrected, he resurrected for us. And even though we haven't received that resurrection yet, Paul can say this in Ephesians 2.6. He raised us up with him as if it's already happened to us even, who believe, and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. God in his mercy, his great mercy even Peter calls it, has given us an assurance in Jesus' resurrection that we too have a living hope for our future. But who does that living hope come to? Uh, Who can have that hope? I mean, is this just some general feel-good message for the world at Easter? Well, the message is for all. But the application of it, the certainty of it, the reality of that living hope is for only those who have been born again, verse 3 says. Verse 3 says, by God's mercy, great mercy, he causes us to be born again. God does it. He gives new birth. Uh, that's how a person comes in to this hope. 
you know, born again is not just a, a certain kind of Christian among different kinds. It's the only kind. You know, as if born again Christians were, they're the real serious ones. And, you know, other Christians don't, they just don't take it as seriously. When Peter says born again Christian, a born again is someone who has this hope. What he's saying is that the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is not just one of you know, degree or seriousness or quality, but it's of our actual nature, who we are internally. Born again is, is, is a terminology that speak, speaks of a father begetting a son. It's a strange word. We don't use that word anymore. But a father begets, he gives the life of his children as procreation happens something that the parents do, God begets his children, born again. You know, when Jesus was teaching on the earth, there was this man named Nicodemus. He was a great teacher, a wise man, an intelligent man, an educated man who knew the scriptures well. And maybe you know the story from John 3, but Nicodemus came to Jesus at night probably for fear, wanting to hide. Oh, but he had a great question. I've got to ask Jesus this question. He came to Jesus, and, and he said to Jesus, Teacher, teacher, uh, we know you, you have a little extra from God. Your teaching, your works, your miracles. We know you've got something. you got something from God. So would you tell me, Jesus? Would you tell us what it is? And Jesus answered him, oh, no, 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 Nicodemus. You've made a big mistake. You don't just need one more thing. As if becoming a Christian was like adding a little more spice to your favorite chili while it simmers on the stove. Nicodemus, you don't just need to even believe one or two more things about me or God. Or Nicodemus, you've got it wrong. You don't just need to clean up one area of your life, and just become a more moral person. No, Nicodemus, you need a new reality. You need a new substance. You need a new explosion from inside out, from your heart. You need change. You need a new radical nature. Nicodemus, you need to be born again. It's the most radical difference. It's not just throwing a little more chili pepper into your, sp- into your chili. Born-again Christian is really just the same way of saying the same thing two different ways. A born-again person is a Christian, and a Christian is born again. J.C. Ryle, I think he was an old British Anglican pastor in the 1800s, said this about being born again. He said, The change which our Lord here declares needful to salvation is evidently no slight or superficial one, like a little spice in the chili. It's not merely reformation or an amendment or even moral change or an outward alteration of life. It's a thorough change of heart, will, and character. It is a resurrection of sorts. It's a new creation. It's a passing from death to life, he said. It's the implanting in our dead hearts of a new principle from above. Love that quote. And if you have a living hope this morning, you know you've been born again. I guess the opposite would be then, if you don't, that's the very thing you need. 
Because by your new birth, you believe that Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead on this resurrection Sunday. And as he purchased a new body for you, which is what Paul's speaking of here, this living hope, he also talks about purchasing a new inheritance for you. And that's our first hope. This first hope we have of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the new birth that's available to us. Here's our second one this morning. I said we're going to hit three. Here's number two. We can hope because we have an inheritance and our inheritance is being kept. And you and I, we, we're being guarded, Peter says in this passage. So Peter says, God in his mercy has caused us to be born again. We see the proof in Christ's resurrection, which secures our inheritance, or, or secures our resurrection too. But it also secures our inheritance. Verses 4 through 5 say this. Look in your long in your Bible or listen. He says, it's an inheritance we have that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So if that's the case, if we've got this amazing inheritance available for us, how and it's coming in the future, you might think, here's our, here's our question, how should that affect us in the here and now? Well, here's what it should do. If we know we've got that inheritance coming, a new life, a future, it should make us more, more buoyant. It means when we go through the furnace, we won't shrivel and, and wither and burn to a crisp when the furnace heats up. It will make us resilient in the face of fire. It'll strengthen our, our, our faith muscles so that we don't lose that living hope. I was listening this actually yes, yesterday to a podcast where um, um, Joni Erickson Tata was being interviewed by Marvin Olasky from uh, World Magazine Group. And if you don't know Joni Erickson Tata, she was a woman who uh, was, I think, about 68, 69 now. But in her, when she was 17, so 40-some years ago, she was paralyzed uh, by diving uh, into, a, into a body of water that was too shallow. She came, became a quadriplegic. And so for 40-some years, she's lived with this disability. Uh, in bed, in a wheelchair, needing to be picked up, carried, cleaned, fed. And she was asked by Marvin Olasky in this interview how when people come to her and say, how do you deal with this? How do you process this? How have you over the years? And she was very honest. She said, I wake almost every day, sometimes hating life even. And having to think, oh, Lord Jesus, I don't have the strength today. I don't, but you do. Help me get out of bed. Help me receive the help I need. And it's so amazing, but she actually said in that interview, I, I think about this woman saying this, I am blessed, she said, to have this disability. I, I was blown away and even brought really to an emotional place. Because she said, if I didn't have this, I'd be the kind of woman who is maybe on her second marriage, in great credit card debt, off just living however I want to, prideful, arrogant. And she said, here's the, how I began to look at this trial. She said this amazing phrase that I probably will never forget. She said, when people ask me, how do you deal with this? How do you, 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 you come with the, to the sovereignty of God and to know that he allowed this in your life? 
at least permitted it. How do you deal with that? And she said this phrase, she said, God permits in our life the things he absolutely hates to accomplish that which he loves in us. We're blown away by that. So what that means is in one sense, when God looks at you going through the furnace and the trial of life, on the one hand, there's part of him that hates what you're going through. It grieves his heart. It breaks his heart to see you suffer, even in things he's allowed into your life. That's a near perspective he has. But see, God is bigger than we can imagine. God is grander than we can think. He also has a far perspective in his will where he knows that what he's allowing to come into your life is accomplishing what he most dearly wants to make you beautiful, to make you strong in faith, to make you resilient, to prepare you for your inheritance. Peter says that that inheritance awaits us. This letter was written to people, Peter says, are aliens. They're scattered. They're not quite at home in this world. Many times we look at others who have maybe a financial inheritance or other things, material things that we don't have, and uh, we feel an envy. Why don't I have that? Or why don't I have the easy life they have now? Why has God given me this challenge, this, this, this trial, this struggle, this disability, as Johnny might think? But Peter says, you have an object of hope that is yours in the future. You share in the heavenly kingdom of the future now. You know, the Old Testament saints in the Old Testament, they had an inheritance too. They looked forward to their inheritance, but what was theirs? It was the promised land of Israel, of Canaan, of Jerusalem. It was the promised land. But you know their inheritance? It faded. It was temporary. It wasn't perfect. And we know, as the Bible stories record, they lost it. They lost their inheritance. But Peter says, you have an inheritance in the eternal city that awaits for you. It's the eternal city of God and his presence in the midst of that city. Your inheritance is the completion of your salvation, verse 5 says in our text today. And it is being kept for you. It's reserved for you, verse 5 says. And it's been secured by the resurrection we celebrate today. And Peter describes this inheritance not as the one that the Old Testament saints lost, but he says, ours is imperishable. It will not decay like the things of earth. Peter says it's undefiled. means it's without sin, a place without sin. And Peter says, this one will not fade away. It will shine bright like the sun. That's how he describes our inheritance, those words. Well, let's look at that inheritance in two ways. The first way is this. Part of that inheritance is that these words, imperishable and undefiled and unfading, they're describing what your resurrected body will be like. Think on that for a moment. A body that will not decay or catch viruses. A body without sinful impulse or temptation. Think about that for a moment. How freeing would it be to have every impulse you feel in the kingdom of God you never have to second-guess it. Every impulse you feel to be pure and not have to be questioned, and you will shine. You will come through the furnace beautiful. And salvation will then be complete for you. That's the first aspect of that inheritance. 
But part of all, as well of that inheritance is that uh, the inheritance will be a land, will be a place, and will be relationships and purpose where everything will be made right. Everything sad, everything bad, everything evil, every fire will be put out. And not only put out, but turned into something beautiful. As all wrongs will be righted. Think on that second aspect of the future inheritance too. So this inheritance that's coming to us, Peter says, it can't be lost. But here's even more importantly this morning, maybe not more, but as important, you can't be lost either. Verse 5 says, this inheritance is, is guarded, you're guarded. But that's an inadequate translation. What that means is that you are kept safe. You are watched. But you hear that word guarded, and you might think, well, I'm guarded from attack. And it does mean that. Guarded from an attack from the outside. But the word also means you're guarded, you're kept from actually escaping too. In other words, God's power is even protecting you and I from our own stupidity. You can't ultimately destroy your life. Now, of course, your decisions impact your life for good or negative, and depending on the, the gravity and weight of the decision, it can impact your life in, in huge ways. But if you are a born-again follower of Christ, what Peter is saying here today is he can't lose you. He can't lose you. Jesus said that in John 6, 3, uh, 39. Let's hear his words. He said, and this is the will of him who sent me, that's Jesus and the Father's will, that I should lose nothing, no thing, no person, no thing of all that he's given me, but raise it up on the last day. There is an eternal flame that he is keeping burning for you. From outside attack, from inside escape, from our own foolish decisions and stupidity. And you're guarded, Peter says, through your faith. God uses your faith to guard you. I like what theologian and Professor Wayne Groom says about this verse. He summarizes it this way. Thus, he says about this verse, we might give the sense of the verse by saying that God is continually using his power to guard his people by means of their faith, a statement which seems to imply that God's power, in fact, energizes and continually sustains individual, personal, real, internal faith. You see, even your faith is a gift of God. It's, it's internal, it's real. It comes from a real will that you exercise and express, but it's given by him and sustained by him as he works in and through you. So are you lacking faith this morning? Here's what I would encourage you to do. Ask God for it. I mean, these verses alone, if this is the only verses that we had, these verses alone guarantee it as a guaranteed yes answered prayer. Since it's his will to use faith, as Peter records, to guard us. I mean, it's a guaranteed prayer. If you're lacking faith this morning, ask God for it. Well, how do you know you're a Christian? First thing we talked about was you, 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 you have this living hope that knowing bo- being born again is available. Here's our second one this morning that comes from this second point of hope. How do you know you're a Christian? You look forward to this inheritance. You you have this internal sense of what's to come. 
and you know that it's guarded and it's kept. And which does what it does is it means you look at life now and it may look like a real furnace, but you look ahead to what he's going to do when he will extinguish all the flames and lay out before us a table of feasting like your eyes have never seen. And the more you look forward to it, the more your living hope will be stirred up in the present. And you'll be able to have our third and final hope this morning. We can hope because joy is available in the midst of our suffering. Verses 6 through 7 speak of this joy, and they say this. In this, verses 3 through 5, what we just unpacked, in this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. So the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, here it is, though it be tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation, the coming of Jesus Christ. We rejoice, these verses say, because of what verses 3 through 5 tell us. In other words, we rejoice in the gospel. And by so doing, we realize the trials that come have a purpose. Like Johnny Erickson Tata said, God permits the things he hates to accomplish that which he most loves in us. Peter said, if necessary, you'll go through the furnace. If necessary, the trials will come. If necessary? It means that any trial you face as a follower of Christ has a sovereign purpose that God has seen and knows is good for you. John Calvin said these about these verses. He said his purpose, Peter's purpose, was to show that God does not thus try his people without reason. For if God afflicted us without a cause, it it would be grievous to bear. Hence, Peter has taken an argument for consolation for you and I from the design of God. Not because the purpose always appears to us. Sometimes it just looks like a fire, doesn't it? We know nothing else. But Calvin goes on, but because we ought to be fully persuaded that it ought to be so, because it is God's will. So how does this practically play out? In our men's group this week, we're in reading Trusting God by Jerry Bridges. We're just coming to the final couple chapters, and this week was on um, growing through trials and struggling. Jerry Bridges used the uh, image in his book this week as we read and talked about it, our men, was the example of of a caterpillar struggling in this cocoon. And there was a bystander that came along who was watching, and she felt bad. She was watching this butterfly struggle to break free from the cocoon, and, you know, it looked like it wasn't going to make it. It was struggling and stuck and and, and, and gooey from the cocoon. And so the lady took some small, a small, tiny pair of, um, uh, of scissors and she thought, I'm going to help this, uh, this butterfly out. And she snipped the cocoon. Ah, freedom. So there was no more effort needed for this little butterfly to use. But what she didn't know was that the struggle for the moth against the cocoon was the very thing it needed to fill its wings with the fluids that it needed 
and to develop the muscle system of those wings in that moment in real time so that this butterfly could, could fly and be beautiful and be what it had been designed to actually be. And so, without the struggle, it shriveled, it died, never even really made it out of the cocoon. God is using your trials, when necessary, to turn you into something beautiful. As we exercise our muscles of faith against the cocoon, against the furnace, we are being formed and transformed so that you won't come out of the furnace of life burnt to a crisp, but as beautiful as precious gold, Peter says in these verses. You know, C.S. Lewis said, he said, God is preparing us, he's turning us into something so beautiful that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to in your life may one day be a creature which if you saw it now, you'd be strongly tempted to worship him or her. Think about that. That's the beauty he's working in you. That is why you can have joy now. He is always up to something. If necessary, he's always up to something. Because even though we don't see Jesus now, Peter says in these verses, we love him because he died for us and he rose for us. Here's what that means. He went into the furnace for you. God didn't social distance from his planet and humanity because we're, we're sinful. No, no, no. He came as close as possible and put on flesh himself, and he went into the center of the furnace for you. This is the gospel. And if you rest your life on that fact that Jesus went into the furnace for you so that he could be with, the, with you in your furnace, that's what the gospel is. Jesus took on the fire of God's wrath. He drank the fiery cup so that by faith and repentance and trust in him, as he resurrected from the grave, a beautiful first one born from the grave, he could be with you in your furnace so that you too would rise someday like a beautiful butterfly from the cocoon of your furnace. There's a story as we close in Daniel chapter 3 where the arrogant king Nebuchadnezzar, he builds a statue of himself that everyone must bow to. You remember there was three young faithful Jewish men who'd been captured and sent away to Babylon they lived under this King Nebuchadnezzar. There was three faithful young men who wouldn't bow to that statue. And they pleaded with them. They told them that the, puni the punishment's death, bow. And they basically said with their actions, you know, King Nebuchadnezzar, you do what you want, but we won't bow to a false god. And in anger, King Nebuchadnezzar heats up the furnace seven times hotter than normal. So it was so hot when they went to throw Daniel, Sh or Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego into the fire, the ones who threw them in died. And they went and they took them and they threw them in. And Nebuchadnezzar went and looked in the furnace from afar, uh, records in Daniel, that he saw not three men, but four men walking around. He thought, but we threw in three, didn't we? We threw in three. Why do I see four? What is going on, Nebuchadnezzar said. And he, and he went on to say, one of them looks, the fourth looks divine, looks supernatural like a son of God. What happened? I believe the pre-incarnate Jesus was with them. Isaiah said these words, When you walk through the fire, I'll be with you. You will not be burned. 
But here's the thing. Jesus is with them in that fire. But Jesus, when he went into the furnace with us, he's there. But when he went into his own furnace, God the Father did not go with him into his. He died forsaken on that cross so that he could be with you in your life, in your furnace. But then he rose again. And oh, how the Father was pleased with his Son. This is why we have hope today. That's why you can have joy right now. What Jesus accomplished is ours. His inheritance is ours. His born-again new life is ours. His resurrection is ours. And when we find this living hope, there is nothing that can take it away. Some of you listening today have this living hope. Some of you listening today know it. Some of you listening today do not. If you do not have this hope today, here's what I encourage you to do. There's, you, you, I want you to express these words, these, this heartfelt, these thoughts to God in a prayer, asking him for faith, asking him for hope, asking for this born-again life, asking to trust that Jesus Christ is Lord who paid for your sin and rose from the dead. You, you know, a prayer, was not, they aren't magic words to say. It's not some magic concoction that if you say these words... But if that's the real sense of your heart today, what's going on, and a real sense of Christ as risen Lord, your prayer might look like something like this. I'll read it. Heavenly Father, I know that I'm your creature, and yet I'm full of anxiety, doubts, lack of trust and sin. I know that my life feels like a struggle against a cocoon, a furnace, but I know right now you're not here. But I want you here in my life. Jesus, I want to be one of your children, one who's born again with a new heart and nature. Give me that living hope today. Give me faith that when you died on the cross, you paid my debt and purchased for me an inheritance that will never go away. Give me faith that you, as you rose from the dead, you secured this inheritance for me. I repent of going my own way and turn to you in faith in Jesus' name. Amen. If that's the the tone of your heart today, that's the thought of your heart today, that's something that's really taken place in you today. Would you let us know? Send a private message, a direct message to Bethany Church. Send me an email at jeff, J-E-F-F, at canbebethany.org. We want to know that. We want to get some information out to you. We want to encourage you today in newfound faith. But let all of us today, let us find hope in the resurrection, a living hope today. We have reason to hope. He has risen. Let me pray for us. Christ, you are here today. Christ, you are present today. Christ, you are ruling and reigning today in this world. Give us hope in that today. That the tomb was not full when they went, but empty. Because of that, we know, oh, your death, your life, your resurrection is true and that the Father has accepted it on our behalf. Let us look forward to the inheritance so we can live now in the midst of the furnace with those who have joy, those who have hope, and those who will come out the other side beautiful as gold. Christ's name we pray.